0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to The Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Parson and Michael Baranowski.
1: Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Jason Brennan, an associate professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at Georgetown University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Ethics of Voting, Libertarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know, Why Not Capitalism, and most recently, Against Democracy. Professor Brennan, welcome to the show.
0: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: You know, the the title of your book seems like a direct challenge to the conventional wisdom about democracy, and it's something I believe you've called democratic triumphalism. And I was wondering if you could explain what that is.
0: Sure. So, democratic triumphalism is my term for the idea that democracy deserves three cheers. So, cheer number one is that it's an end in itself. It's just in itself, just because it's democracy, regardless of how well it performs. Cheer number two is that um, participating in politics is good for us and makes us better people. And cheer number three is that democracy is the best functioning form of government. So, I think it, it doesn't deserve the first two cheers, and I'm skeptical of whether it deserves the third cheer either. Uh, the the it might turn out that democracy is the best form of government, but it's actually open to uh empirical scrutiny and it might that might turn out to be false
1: right It reminds me of that qu- of that quote that 's often attributed to Winston Churchill that the democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others uh, and so you 're saying that he perhaps has gotten that he got that one
0: right or uh... Well, I think we don't know for sure. I mean, if we compare democracy to the other forms of government we've tried in general, I I think it outperforms monarchy, it outperforms theocratic systems, it outperforms uh, um, oligarchic states or one party states. um, Though there might be some reason to think that constitutional monarchies plus democracy works better than like pure democracies. But yeah, so compared to what we've tried, it it has done better but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best we can do in the same way that you know might be like the bmw m3 is the best car on the market right now but that doesn't mean that you can't actually improve the car the car doesn't have any flaws So I think democracy has some systematic flaws that we know about, and it might be possible to fix those flaws and improve upon them.
1: Hmm. Okay. And, you know, it seems to me when we think about better or worse forms of government, there are some obvious cases, right, where where the form of government matters. I I often think of the uh, comparison between North Korea and South Korea, for instance. But I was wondering, aside from a few extreme examples like that, how can we know the extent to which democracy performs compared to uh, non-democratic alternatives?
0: Yeah, so there's, this is a big question, and there's a lot of sort of empirical work on this. And um, uh, one way to do it is to do what, say, institutional economists do in the economics department. You can – there are different ways of measuring things, like how, how well different governments are, say, committed to the rule of law, and there are various indices for measuring that, or how much they, say, protect uh, private property from extraction and how much they – are committed to other kinds of policies. And then when you get that, at the very least, you can run these kind of regressions where you can sort of rank all the countries and then see like whether whether certain institutions are correlated positively or negatively with certain kinds of outcomes that you value. And you can do these sorts of things over time. So you can see as these institutions change. Um, What happened? So we find, for example, like over the past 30 years that countries that moved more towards, say, economically free institutions generally got richer, their people lived longer, um, they got more education, and the countries that became less economically free, um, in terms of actually they got a little bit more education too, but their people became poor and um, lived, didn't get as big of a boost in life expectancy. And then, you know, there's theoretical stuff that kind of explains this. So I think I think there is robust work trying to explain why certain institutions function the way they do. And we can use, you know, kind of second semester graduate student statistics to kind of test these sure. theories. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of the background of it. Now, you mentioned. Uh, but it's weird that like when it comes to democracy, though, uh, for whatever reason, most philosophers don't really want to look into that kind of work like they're hmm. they're surprisingly uninterested in the empirical stuff about how well it functions. Instead, so what they want to do is argue that it doesn't matter how well it functions; it's just just because it's democracy, period. Huh.
1: Okay. Uh, well, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, at one point that what we value, and that's how we have to determine whether or not it's working. And I think maybe there are some. Assumptions that people haven't uh, considered about that. So, I mean, what is it? Would you argue that 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 we should value, that we should use as sort of the benchmark to say whether or not this is working? It gets to the question, I guess, of what do we mean by working well or working poorly in the first place, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I have opinions on that, but there's sort of a, a philosophical point here, which is I'm trying to convince the reader of the book to be what you might call an instrumentalist about democracy, which means that. You shouldn't think of democratic institutions as being valuable ends in themselves, but rather you should simply pick whatever form of government turns out to reliably produce just outcomes, where the outcomes are defined independently of the procedure itself. Right. And I and so officially, I'm saying like insert the correct sort of theory of what the just outcomes are, and you should pick the form of government that that produces that. So there's a sense in which like I'm trying to be as far as the book goes, agnostic about what the outcomes are, but just try to convince you that democracy simply has the kind of value a hammer has and nothing more. That said, when I when I have to like put bring up substantive points that I think are count kind of against it, um or for it, I'll bring up talk about things like, well, what is the general level of prosperity? How happy are the people that live there? How how, how much freedom do they have? How well are their civil liberties protected? Um, how much, how are they treated in criminal courts if they go to criminal court? Um, how do the poor do as compared to places other countries? So I, I try to draw upon a wide range of things that I think most sensible people are going to care about. I'm not trying to fix this on any particular theory of, of uh, substantive justice.
1: Right. So, I mean, most people, right, would agree that uh, some, some basic values like liberty, security, prosperity would would probably be things that almost any mm. reasonable person would want from any system of government.
0: Yeah. 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 And there are people who will deny that. So um, really? early in the book, I talk about a couple of philosophers who are what we call, might call pure proceduralists. Uh, pure proceduralism is the thesis that um, there are no – Substantive ends of justice that we have to realize, but all we have are constraints on how we make decisions. So pure procedurals would say, anything a democracy decides counts as just, provided the democracy decided to do it the right way. Right. But the problem with that view, um, and there are and there are philosophers who will endorse it, though. The funny thing is they'll endorse it in one paper, and then when they go write about something else, they don't endorse it anymore. <laughs> I don't think anyone actually believes this. Yeah. And the reason I don't believe it is because it's, it's kind of absurd, because it leads to the following absurd conclusions. Like, oh, suppose we follow... An ideal democratic deliberation following the rules that Jurgen Habermas has laid out for us, and then we decide unilaterally that we're going to nuke the tiny island nation-state of <laughs> Tuvalu, well, then according to that, it must be just right, then. Right, And that's, that's absurd. So uh, I don't think anyone actually believes that, though. Some people will defend it in print.
1: Yeah. Now, you know, I – there's this argument against democracy, I guess that I've heard a lot of people say, is the fundamental problem with democracy is, is well, is people, essentially, mm-hmm. and, and that democracy isn't working very well because there are too many poorly informed, ignorant, irrational people that are. Making too many decisions—it's kind of reversed the old saying that the only cure for the ills of democracy is more democracy. There, there, I think there are some folks who would say, "No, we actually were better off when we had a less democratic system." What do you think about that—that sort of line of reasoning?
0: Yeah. So the early part of the book spends a lot of time reviewing the empirical work on how much voters know or don't know, the way that they reason, the way that they use their minds, how they think about evidence what happens when they talk to each other about politics and so on. And the empirical work is extremely depressing. <laughs> I would say, like, however ignorant you think voters are, um, if you actually go and look at the work, they're, they're much worse than that. Yeah. Um, we're, we're often – those are the kind of people who are sort of educated about politics are often stunned at how little people know. And, and a kind of summary is that, you know, Americans generally know who the president is and pretty much not anything else, anything yeah. else that might be relevant to politics. And it's not just that they're ignorant, but they're often systematically misinformed about really basic things. So the reason behind this, like um, there there is debate about why this is so. But the theory I subscribe to says it's not because people are stupid or because they're bad, but because democracy has bad incentives. So an analogy I'll use for my students is um, I'll say, like, imagine like you're in a a thousand person econ 101 class and the professor says to you, we're only going to have one grade. It's going to be a final exam in four months. And it's because I believe in equality, what I'm going to do is take all of your test scores and average them together, and you all get the same score. <laughs> and then I ask them, if you were in a class like that, how, what do you think the average score would be? How much would you study? And they say, I wouldn't study, so the average, and no one else would either, so the average grade would be an F. Right. So this would be an example of rational, what we call rational ignorance. The idea is that uh, the cost, people will consume information and retain information only if the benefits to them of that information exceed the costs. For most people in a democracy, because their vote counts for so little, the benefits of being politically well-informed are not as high as the cost of getting that information. So what you find is people who are kind of politics nerds, who enjoy politics for its own sake, know a lot about politics, but they're incredibly biased. I call them hooligans. And then people who don't find politics interesting interesting, know basically nothing about politics and uh, don't really participate or care very much, and I call them hobbits. Hmm. So I think – The problem with democracy is that it undermines – in order to work, it needs an informed electorate, but it creates incentives that lead to an uninformed electorate.
1: Now, could you go – could we go even further than that and and say that there are actually – incentives to be irrational i'm thinking that it feels good to kind of emote oh, yeah. and, you know so so it actually it eats even more that you know and it kind of reminds me of and i know you i believe you reference his book in in your book uh brian Kaplan wrote a book uh the myth of the rational voter i talked to him not too long hmm. ago but and, and just along the same lines you're saying on a, on a wide variety of policy issues it's just startling how uh well how misinformed voters are
0: yeah, that's right. So ignorance, in a sense, even wouldn't be that scary, because um, there's a sense in which if you were purely ignorant, then, you know, everyone would just sort of have random political preferences, they cancel each other out, and it wouldn't really make a difference. But in fact, they make systematic mistakes. Yeah. And so there's a, a big field of political psychology that's been studying how people think. And it's clear that we have all of these biases in how we process information. For example, we um, we look for information that confirms what we already believe, and we tend to ignore and evade information that disconfirms what we believe we are biased to form groups and to be sort of overly nice and and even like hypocritical towards members of our group and then like overly nasty and mean towards members of the other group and to just believe whatever our group believes because we view them as authoritative. Um, And this is kind of a weird bias. And it's clear these biases are here, but you might think of it as human beings are disposed to be biased in the way they process information. But in some decisions, when you act in a biased way, you get punished for your mistakes. And so reality will tend to make you behave better Like if i'm about to cross the street i look and i see um what mm-hmm. appears to be a mac truck barreling towards me i might have the fantasy that oh that's actually optimus prime my childhood uh, hero <laughs> from the transformers coming to take me on an adventure but if i allow myself to indulge that fantasy i'll get hurt right. so over time that kind of daydream will get sort of punished out of me and if i act smartly i get rewarded in politics though because individual votes matter so little We don't get punished for being wrong, and as you were saying, we actually get rewarded for being right. Because I think what most people do with their political beliefs is they they form their political beliefs as a way of having kind of expensive set of beliefs that proves their loyalty to a group that they want to affiliate with. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of theory that. Lots of beliefs, like religious beliefs might be like this too. They're kind of weird and we believe them because it, it, it's expensive to believe them and the fact that we commit to them proves that we really are a loyal member of a group and it's sort of useful to be seen as a loyal member of a group. So the, the view is like, well, maybe political beliefs are about flag-waving. They're not actually about advocating for policy. They're rather about showing that you're a faithful member of a group that you want to be a part of.
1: Right. You, you know, the, there are a couple of arguments that, that people who are very pro-democracy have have mentioned from time to time like one very common one that was big a few years back was this idea of the wisdom of crowds right the idea that while irrational well individually we may and certainly are irrational as a group we tend to be you know very rational to make great choices the examples often of like picking the number of skittles in a jar or something like that but 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 you would say that when it comes to politics that the evidence suggests that that's oftentimes not really the case right
0: yeah, that's right. So it, it is clear there is a phenomenon of the wisdom of the crowds. It's true. Like for some reason, if the more people you have guess the weight of a pig, the closer the average is going to be. <laughs> the more people you have guess the number of Skittles in the jar, the closer the average will be. There's certain and, we, and there's certain cases like that where errors tend to cancel each other out and people tend to sort of congregate around the truth. And it's an interesting puzzle when that takes place and when it doesn't. Um. So there are these mathematical models that say that the crowd will be smart even though um, individuals – most individuals within that crowd are not smart. And then I ask – in Chapter 7 of the book, I ask, do any of these models actually work when it comes to democracy? Right. So one of them is called uh, the miracle of aggregation. It says, well, if people are perfectly ignorant, then it will turn out that uh, the ignorant voters won't know what they're talking about. So if given two choices, they'll just – basically randomly choose between those two choices. And when you have lots of ignorant people, it'll just end up being 50-50. It's like flipping a coin over and over again. You're going to get 50% heads, 50% tails. So the ignorant people cancel each other out and the informed people carry the day. Magic. Um, But the problem is with that is it turns out empirically people are not making random choices. In fact, they have systematic preferences. Low information people do not vote randomly. They actually prefer certain sets of policies and tend to select candidates that actually go for those policies whereas high information people have completely different sets of policies. So similar to the other kinds of mathematical theorems, there's one called the Hong Page Theorem, it's then called the uh, uh, Condorcet-Jury Theorem, they have the similar problem where if people can be shown to be making systematic mistakes, and it's clear that they do, we have 65 years' worth of evidence showing that they do, then the theorems either don't apply, or worse, in the case of Condorcet's jury Theorem, it says that the crowd will always make the wrong choice. Right. So yeah, I think I think there are special cases where people make collectively smart decisions, but I think we can show that democracy isn't one of them.
1: Yeah. You know, what about what about the argument that low knowledge voters aren't really the problem because people can use uh, uh, heuristics, uh, sort of cognitive shortcuts to make good decisions? Like, for instance, the average voter might not know anything about economic policy, but she can look back over the last four or eight years or so, uh, take a look at her personal situation and whether it's been worse or better than make a decision, say, if it's been worse to throw the bums out. You know, called yeah. retrospective voting, essentially.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in a sense, they could, but they don't. At first, <laughs> as we can tell, I think they really don't. Right. Um, so it is true that there are these shortcuts. You can ask an expert. You can uh, just sort of use the retrospective voting heuristic and so on. But then when we try to investigate how well people do this, it looks like they don't even meet the requirements to do this well. So here's some reasons to think that. One is, in order to engage in retrospective voting, you have to know roughly what happened in the past four years. Right. Right. You have to know who you have to know who was in power and what did they do? What do they have the power to do and what happened? And when we go and poll voters, we find they don't know any of that. Typically, they don't know who their congressperson was. They don't know which party controlled Congress. They have no awareness of recent events. They can't estimate things like the unemployment rate or, uh, you know, the GDP per capita or anything like that within any reasonable percentage. Um, in fact, things like random events, like weather events, tend to dominate their reasoning over the actual facts. So you're, you're more likely as a governor to get punished for um, a hurricane happening while you're, being, <laughs> while you're a governor than for you making stupid decisions. Wow. Uh, and other heuristics don't seem to work that well either, because uh, one way of testing this is to see, like, as people become more informed, do they change their policy preferences or not? So if it turned out that better informed people have the same policy preferences as less informed people. That would be at least some presumptive evidence that e- it, one possibility is that it just means that the better informed people are crackpots too. But another, <laughs> yeah. another possibility is that it means that somehow the less informed people are using heuristics and they're behaving the way the well informed do. Right. Um, but in fact, we find that high information voters and low information voters vote differently and have different preferences and yeah. so on. Um, and to a certain degree, and this is, I think, a thing that people often miss. They often think, well, the candidates are there and all you have to do is choose between two candidates. That's not that hard, right? But what they miss is that the quality of the candidates is itself a factor based on the quality of the electorate. So parties run candidates with the expectation that they'll appeal to the people who are voting. So if the typical people voting are out to lunch, then we're going to get bad candidates.
1: Right. Well, you know, I, I, I feel like a sort of an apologist for democracy here, but there's, there's one other argument I'd sort of like you to address is some people say that the problem maybe isn't that we're too democratic, but that we're not democratic enough. You know, in the 2016 elections, for instance, voter turnout was under 60 percent, midterm elections, yeah. you know, it hasn't gotten over 45 percent in nearly half a century. And so is it unreasonable to think that more voters might give us better outcomes?
0: Uh, Well, here's my worry. So, like, it is true that if, well, you know, there's a issue with like Trump versus Clinton. So people say, well, Trump lost the popular vote, but he won the electoral college. So if only we had a popular vote, then he wouldn't have won. Uh, And that's not that's not even obviously true because if we had a different type of voting system than the one we in fact have parties and campaigns and so on would have been run very differently. Right. So it's hard to predict what would have happened. You can't, you can't sort of imagine that like the election takes place as is and people vote. And then after they vote, we suddenly change the rules and right. so on. But but here's my worry. Uh, when we look at the distribution of knowledge, this is what we find. The people who actually vote don't know very much. In fact, the American national election, but, 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 the people who do stay home know even less. And right, that's depressing right. given how little people know. <laughs> yeah. like the American the American National Election Studies every two years gives people basically the equivalent of like a quiz, like what do you know about politics? And uh, as Scott Allhouse says, you can kind of like divide people into knowledge quartiles. The top 25% of voters get like an A- on the quiz. The next 50% don't do really that well at all. Like they do kind of close to chance. But the bottom 25% make systematic mistakes. They get questions like, like the bottom twenty-five percent co- voters, you give them questions like, "Who's more conservative? Who's more who who favors this? What's what?" And they get the facts completely wrong. They do yeah. it worse than chance, um, and those are the people who vote. And when we look at the people who don't vote, they're actually less knowledgeable than than the voters. So expanding the polls means. Bring like if we get right. more people participating, we're going to just uh, get a wider number of ignorant people.
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that that old uh, programmers uh, uh, saying of garbage in, garbage out, right? I mean, essentially, yeah. To not to be a little kind of blunt about, it. you know, there are also some people who say that well, voting is more than a right, though it's it's a civic obligation, in fact, and and you know, of course, in yeah. some countries, it's it's a legal obligation too. It's not that like they'll right. throw you in prison if you don't vote or anything, but uh, uh, but 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 it seems. Seems like that, in our context at least, all the evidence suggests that if we if we made it a legal obligation, we might actually get even worse outcomes than we're getting now. Basically,
0: yeah. Well, that's yeah. You know, I actually wrote I wrote a whole book on compulsory voting. I had a debate with another political scientist, and uh, chapter four of the book was called "Should We Force the Drunk to Drive?" I threw up my spin <laughs> on it. Uh, and the thing is, when you actually look at compulsory voting regimes where they force people to vote and and try to measure does Compulsory voting lead to any sort of substantively better outcomes. Uh, the evidence is really weak. It it basically says no. It doesn't. It doesn't lead to any of the stuff that people who support compulsory voting hope it would lead to. Like mm. they think, like I mean, frankly, a lot of people who support compulsory voting are like, well, I think that would mean the left wing party would win all the time. And it's like, no, nope, that's a good that's a good theory, but no, we've tested it. It yeah. turns out not to be true. Oh, it would lead to more income inequality. No, it actually looks like income equality leads to compulsory voting, not the other way around, mm. et cetera. Et cetera. So I don't think it's like a disaster to have more people vote, because in a sense, I think the damage has already been done. (laughs) Uh, But it's like, it's not, it's not going to make things a lot better. Right. That's that's the worry. Well, you know, in your book, you
1: suggest an alternative system of government called epistocracy. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that is, how it would work, and why you think it would be perhaps an improvement on what we have now.
0: Yeah. So an epistocracy, that's a a phrase coined by uh, the philosopher David Eslin. It means like, episteme, knowledge, crossy, like the, the uh, Kratos, the power rule, uh-huh. uh, as opposed to democracy, the rule of the people. So, epistocracy is the rule of the knowers, in a sense. And in an epistocratic system, by law, um, political power is not evenly dispersed, but in some way, people who have more knowledge are given more power than people who have less knowledge. Um, there's lots of different variations of this, and in the book I say, it's, we don't really know for sure if any of these would work better, but we have some presumptive reason to think they would, and it's worth investigating them and doing more empirical work and maybe even experimenting with them and seeing what happens. Right. So here's an example. One could be, by default, no one gets the right to vote, but if you pass a quiz of basic political knowledge, then you acquire the right. right. Or another system, call that um, call that uh, selective enfranchisement. Another system which John Stuart Mill advocated, and at one point even uh, John Rawls, the philosopher John Rawls, seemed to, I think it was okay, is called plural voting, in which everyone gets one right to vote, but you can acquire additional votes if you get certain credentials, like you pass a quiz with uh-huh. basic knowledge. Uh, the Mexican philosopher Claudio Lopez Guerra favors a system in which no one has the right to vote, but randomly, right before the election, you randomly select 20,000 citizens. They and only they are allowed to vote, but they have to first go through kind of public deliberation with one another hmm. as a kind of competence-building exercise. There are statistical methods, like we you vote, but when you vote, you put down your demographic information, you put down what it is did you want, and then you take a quiz of basic knowledge. And when you collect all that data from all the, Amer- all the people who vote, you can then statistically determine what would the voting populace want, keeping its demographics right. the same, controlling for whatever effect that has, while simulating what would happen if they were fully informed. And then you do that instead of what they actually want, because there's mm. presumptive reason to think that's better. And there's a couple other systems as well, like involving vetoes and things like that. Um, and really the argument the argument here, uh, so so David Eslin, who I mentioned before, he has a worry about this kind of system. He says, Well you might know better, but that doesn't make you boss. And he's right about that. Sure. It's like my my sister in law is a registered dietitian, she knows better than I do what it is I should eat, but that doesn't mean she can force me to eat any particular right. diet. So he's absolutely right about that. But my my kind of spin, my my way of responding to Eslin is to say, no, you're right. It's not that the people who know better should should be boss because they know better, but rather Maybe the fact that some people don't know what they're doing is a reason why they shouldn't be a boss. So it's right. like it's not that because I know better I should be in charge, but because you don't know what you're talking about, you shouldn't be in charge.
1: Right. So don't let the drunks drive, essentially. I mean yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. Don't put don't make the captain of the ship if you if you don't know how to steer a ship, you shouldn't be the captain. Yeah. Well, you know like I have a right I have a right not to be subjected to incompetent yeah. rule.
1: Well, some people, I think, will, will respond to this, kind of have an immediate visceral response when they hear about things like voter knowledge tests and awarding more, more votes. You know, they might think back to the sort of things that were done, you know, like, for instance, in the American South, right, in our past to disenfranchise yeah. some voters. And, and and my, I'm wondering, wouldn't any system that isn't essentially a system of more or less universal suffrage run the risk of being politicized to shut out certain groups?
0: Yeah, I think so, and I, I, like, I admit that in the book, and that's one of the objections I raise uh, in it. Like, it's not, it's not sort of like a new objection, but right. it's something that I put in there. And so what I try to tell people is, yes, um, but what we need to do here is, if, if we're being serious about politics, then what we're not going to do is sort of compare an idealized, imaginary version of one regime to like a realistic description of another, right. but rather we, are, we basically have to accept that both democracy and epistocracy are going to be subject to rent-seeking and various kinds of politicized abuse, and so the question is just which system warts and all works better than the other one. So by the time I argue for this, I've gotten, I've gotten to the conclusion democracy is not an end in itself. It's just an instrument. So if, if the epistocracy turns out to be even a slightly better instrument where you can feel free to use it. But that said, um, I, I have a paper coming out on this. I call that the, uh, what you just brought up, I call the demographic objection to epistocracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for it, but um, I, I mean, I've, thousands of words of things to say about it. But here's a couple points. So some people who are inclined to make this argument subscribe to what I call the naive theory of democracy, which is just that if if people like you vote, then your interests will be served. I remember I was giving a talk about this at some school and a student said something like that. And I said, okay, well, I want you to imagine I have a magic wand. And when I wave it, it will cause all minorities to vote for Donald Trump or people like him. <laughs> would you like me to, and from henceforth, they'll always vote 100% and they'll always vote for Donald Trump and or whoever's the equivalent of Donald right. Trump. Right. And I'm like, would you like me to wave the magic wand? And she said, no, of course <laughs> not. I'm like, great. So you agree with me that it's not simply that you vote, but how you vote matters. Right. And this is the worry, it's that, Um, Yeah, when we look at levels of political knowledge, on average, they're low, but they're not perfectly even among all demographic groups. Like like the average white person, the average black person are ignorant, but the average white person is a little bit less ignorant than the average black person, Mm -hmm. for example. But the problem here is even if you think, well, people are smart enough to know what outcomes they want. They know that we should have more employment. They know that we should have less crime or something to know how to vote requires tremendous social scientific knowledge. You have to know which candidates are pushing the policies that will in fact produce the outcomes that you want. And knowing that requires knowing history and politics and economics and, and you just even knowing the party platform, which people usually don't know. Uh So I think there's just no escaping that uh, um, knowledge would make things better. And I think even this current, the last election that we just had um, I, I see this as a nice example of why epistocracy could help because it's like, well, what happened? Well, minorities voted against trump and it didn't matter because he won anyways because what we need to do to protect minorities is protect them from the low information white people it doesn't really matter if they vote or not they're going to be outweighed you know can we
1: really expect people with more political knowledge to make better political choices now now maybe on the surface that sounds kind of strange but there's a school of thought that would suggest that lack of political knowledge isn't really the problem. The fundamental problem here is irrationality, and, and I've seen some research suggesting that being more knowledgeable doesn't make you more rational. Right. And in fact, more right. knowledgeable people might actually be more partisan, more extreme, less willing to compromise that sort of thing. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that?
0: I, I think that is true. So I, I even say something like that in the book, it's like, uh, as I put it, we the people we have to work with are ho- hobbits and hooligans, right. low information people who don't care, who who aren't biased only because they don't care. Like if they actually had an opinion, they would be biased about it. But they're not biased because they don't have an opinion. And then people who know a little bit more but are incredibly biased. And so the the model of democratic politics people often work with involves imagining people to be what I call Vulcans, which are like perfectly rational, disinterested beings who are have no loyalty to their, to their beliefs will give them up in the face of disconfirming evidence and no one's actually really like that we, we just have hobbits and hooligans so it is true that like the high information people are also really really biased people um, so you might think well we have irrational we have high information irrational people or low information people who would be irrational if only they cared and right. so that's that's our voting populace so that said like he, this is an interesting finding though even though that's true and even though it's true that like Partisans tend to be sort of ideological hacks. Nevertheless, you still find certain trends. High information, say, take the Democratic Party. High information and low information voters within the Democratic Party have different preferences. High information voters, um, according to, say, Martin Gillens in his book, Affluence and Influence, High information Democrats are, say, pro-free trade, they are more pro-immigration, they're less in favor of sort of warmongering uh, mm-hmm. policies, they favor, say, diplomatic um, foreign policy rather than sort of aggressive foreign policy. Low-infor And they're, say, more in favor of gay rights. Uh, low information Democrats have the opposite preferences. If you switch over to the Republican Party, you find the same trend. In general, you still find that high information people... Regardless of their ideological background, tend to start moving towards one set of policies, and low-information people, regardless of their demographics or ideological background, tend to mm. convalesce around like a I know, so it's coalesce like, or sort of a circle around a uh, a different set of policies. Right. You know, and that's why you might see something like you know Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were making very very similar claims, even though they're running for different parties. Yeah.
1: Did- do you Do you get a sense I mean that the system that that was set up back in seventeen eighty nine was was set up with a very different system of voting as well or I mean our institutional mm-hmm. system and sometimes I wonder if maybe what's happened over time is that we have we've developed sort of a mismatch between institutions that were designed with the thinking that there was only going to be a small number of presumably higher information voters voting to the system we have now where maybe there's not quite that match between the setup that the framers had and who they imagined would be voting or not i mean do do you think there's do you think there's something to that
0: yeah i think that's right uh so the in a sense like what they were worried about they 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 were purposefully keeping the franchise restriction and you might say well they're racist and sexist and all that it's like Yes, they were, but the thing is, they're so racist and sexist that it wasn't even occurring to them that they might restrict the franchise from women and, and blacks and others. Like, of course, they're not going to vote. Right. So that that wasn't even like entering into their heads as as part of their consideration when designing the system. Um, but they were worried about low information voting, and I, I sometimes like we'll play a game with people where I'll put up a bunch of like a pair of quotes on the board, and I'll I'll say like, which one did Thomas Jefferson actually say? Which one did Andrew Jackson actually say? Which one did Madison actually say? And you know there, some one of the quotes will say something like "Democracy works only if people are informed and the other vote will other quote will say something like, "We just have to have everybody vote doesn't matter and then over time, students realized they were all saying the democracy requires information mm-hmm. claim. right so in a sense what they what they were imagining was a system in which we' more or less have a system where only high information people are voting, but because there's fewer of them, they're going to vote sort of selfishly and then we need to kind of control for selfish behavior by putting in institutions that force them to have a compromise yeah Um, even uh there's a nice book by the uh political theorist greg uh winar called um um madison's metronome and he claims that the reason that madison designed the constitution the way it is was simply to slow down decision making he had this thought that something would happen people like all the people would get caught up in a frenzy and fury and have all these uh, passions and emotions But then and they want to react and do something kind of rash. But then if you simply slow down lawmaking, then cooler heads would prevail and they'd have a better response. Mm -hmm. So they were they were sort of really worried that they thought, well, we're going to make a system where you're going to have high information people vote and we have to protect from their selfishness. Um, What we actually have now is a system in which we have a huge number of people voting. They're very low information on average uh, and they're not selfish. They're actually altruistic. So we have uh, sort of nice but dumb voters (laughs) rather than mean but smart voters, right? And, and actually, that, that might sound like it's a better thing, but in fact, it's probably worse. Uh, we have all these models of what would happen in politics if only everyone were sort of a rational sociopath. And there's reason to think that that would actually lead to better outcomes than what wow. we in fact get.
1: Okay. Well, you know, I, I mean, you've I, you've pretty much convinced me. I was actually uh, convinced from probably even before I encountered your work, but you kind of put a lot of flesh on some of the arguments that, that I've kind of been running around in my head. But I guess the next question I have then is, okay, is there anything we can do or are we just sort of doomed? I mean, on a practical sort of nuts and bolts level, is there anything that we can realistically do to Try to move in that the direction you're suggesting.
0: Yeah. So some of this stuff is just illegal. Like it doesn't. It <laughs> goes against the Fourteenth Amendment. Right, you couldn't actually right. implement it without changing the Constitution. But there's there are things that we could do that are probably legal. So one version of epistocracy is what we call an epistocratic veto, um, where you have a, a elite bodies that can veto legislation. I think maybe that's compatible with the Constitution, but. Um, I think that kind of just requires a legal decision to decide, like it's kind of like depends on what the judges say. Right. Uh, another thing is we have this public culture of pushing everyone to vote no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's instrumentally reasonable for politicians to say stuff like that because they feel more legitimate if they have a higher voting numbers. They they know certain people are likely to vote for them, so they don't really care what they know. They just push for them to vote. Right. But if we had a culture that said something like, no, if, like voting without knowing what you're doing is like polluting. You mm-hmm. know? And it, it, it re- I really do think of it as being analogous to the problem of pollution in that like, my individual pollution doesn't make a difference, but if we all pollute, it makes a huge difference. So mm. similarly, yeah. individual political knowledge doesn't matter, but if most people are ignorant, then it does. We get these systematically bad effects. So if we, if we shamed people about uh, voting the way that we sort of shame them about pollution and littering and so on, I think we could get a better culture. Um, you can even imagine the government doing something like, uh, like a week before the election. There's something called the voter achievement exam, and you go and take this quiz of basic political information. And this doesn't this doesn't determine whether you get the right to vote or not. You still have the right to vote, but if you pass the quiz, you get say a $500 tax credit or a $1,000 tax credit. So the government's basically paying people to be informed. Right um, now. I don't know how much it would cost overall, how well it would work, but that's the kind of thing where you can incentivize people to know something. And if it turns out when people learn this information, it does change their minds a little bit.
1: And, you know, and I, mean, I, can...
0: like, take, I think a nice example would be like take Brexit, you know, like the mm-hmm. Brexit vote. Right after the Brexit vote, they interview people. They did a big series of polls to find out what people believed, And they asked them, you know, uh, how many how many immigrants from the EU reside in the UK? And the Leave voters overestimated the truth by a factor of about eight, the Jeez. state voters overestimated it by a factor of about four. What if they'd been told? What if somehow they'd been incentivized to learn the truth right, right beforehand? Well, they might have voted differently.
1: Yeah, and I guess one of the nice things, right, about having a system uh, of federalism yeah. is this is the sort of thing that we could presumably try on a on a local or state level before it was uh, an entirely uh, a national level type thing. So it's right. maybe even a little more doable in our in our system than it would be in say some other systems of government, perhaps. So. Uh, I, w- I wanted to point that out because so much of what we've been talking about is just so very depressing, obviously, but there there certainly yeah. are some possibilities for change, I guess. Um, you know, one final question I have for you is, I, I know you know that so much of what we people read and watch about politics is that kind of instant analysis, really granular stuff, uh, you know, looking at the trees without really pulling back to survey of the forest. And I thought, well, as a philosopher by training – you might be just the person to ask for some recommendations for people who want to maybe get away from that and develop a more kind of well-rounded and, well, you know, philosophical view of politics. Of course, aside from your books, uh, is there anything that you'd recommend that people, that listeners maybe take a look at?
0: You know, uh, yeah, I'd say like, it'd be really helpful for the average person who doesn't have a background in this stuff to really just Pull out an econ one hundred and one textbook and read it. Pull mm-hmm. out a poli sci one hundred and one textbook and read it. And then get like an introduction to political philosophy and read it. But uh, maybe maybe like the best sort of thing that goes puts all of those things together is uh, an anthology by Jeff Brennan, Johnny Anomaly, Jeff Sarah McCord, and Michael Munger called Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. It's just a collection of essays. It's really meant to be a textbook, but. If you read that, like you know a lot, like you basically, if you read that, you're going to be a good voter. So, one way of putting it, okay. like, you're going to know what you need to know. Um, so, yeah, there's stuff like that. I mean, I have a, I have a free um, political philosophy text, like and thought, like a political philosophy book that you can read for free. Um, if you just like Google Jason Brennan political philosophy, um, an introduction, like. You can okay. download that for free, and it will give you a good overview of, like, what's going on in political philosophy. It's not defending my view of political philosophy. It's just giving you a background in it.
1: Well, great. Well, we will I'll, – I'll actually put a link on that and to the, uh, and to the anthology you mentioned on the, on the show notes there so listeners can check that out. So I, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you today. Thanks so very much for taking the time.
0: Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. I appreciate you too.
1: it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash politicsguyspage, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.